Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Aaron William Perry to the show. Aaron William Perry is a consultant, executive advisor, and author with deep expertise in the renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, and finance industries. He is the founder of the Why on Earth Community, a global nonprofit that provides media resources and curated community and corporate events to mobilize community health and well-being in the context of global stewardship, regeneration, and sustainability. He is currently completing an epic novel and screenplay all about these momentous times that we're living in. Aaron, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks, Raj. I appreciate this opportunity to chat with you and to connect with your audience. Aaron, I appreciate you being on. Aaron, where are you currently located? I am in uh, Boulder, Colorado, uh, right outside of the Metro Denver Front Range. And how's the weather up there? Well, it's nice today. It's a little cooler than it has been in the past several weeks and not quite as smoky as we've seen uh, the past few weeks. It's It's been an extraordinarily challenging uh, month or two around here as it has been in many communities with all of the uh, smoke coming from forest fires. So am I hearing you correctly? The forest fire smoke drifted that far east? Well, yes, we're getting smoke, you know, from as far west as uh, California and the uh, Pacific coast. We also have fires within 100 miles of us here uh, burning in the Rocky Mountains. Well, hope you guys stay safe up there. Thank you. So, Aaron, I'd like to open my show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Oh, wow. That's a great and uh, open-ended question. Um, You know, I think one thing I would share is that uh, my heritage is a mixture of both European ancestry and Native American ancestry. And because I am part German uh, and Celtic, uh, English and Slovenian, and I am also Mohawk Indian, uh, coming from the region of North America that we now call upstate New York, I have been able to dig into different cultural traditions and develop an understanding of some of the challenges and opportunities we have in front of us in these times through a few different cultural lenses. And it has been, for me, a great joy over the last 25 years to dig into cultural history while also approaching and working on solutions for some of the technological challenges we're facing, such as climate change, and have actually found a whole lot of information, knowledge, and I would say even wisdom uh, coming through all of those different uh, cultural threads. That is really interesting. Now, excuse my ignorance. You said the Mohawk. Is that correct? 
Yes, the Mohawk people are part of the Iroquois Confederacy found in the upstate New York uh, region and the Eastern Great Lakes region. And interestingly, Ben Franklin actually spent a good bit of time with my ancestors and he uh, discovered some mechanisms for governance that actually made their way into our constitution from the Mohawk people. Uh, one uh, of great note is the uh, war powers coming from Congress. Uh, he learned uh, from the Mohawk that it was the grandmother's council who were the only ones in the society that had permission to uh, determine whether to go to war. And uh, of course, we all probably know a few great grandmothers. Uh, and I don't mean great like a, a generational, but just wonderful women. And uh, it seems grandmothers are not likely to go to war wantonly, but only would choose to do that when there is a grave threat. And so that was one of the mechanisms Ben Franklin borrowed and uh, worked into the constitution of this country. You know, I've heard it said many a time that if more women ruled, we would have less conflict. I've heard that a lot as well, Raj, and got to say, I, I, I think there's probably a lot of truth and wisdom in that. I agree. So you mentioned climate change. Can you give an overview of your organization, Why on Earth? Yes, happy to. So the Why on Earth community is a nonprofit educational organization based here in Colorado. And we work with a network of ambassadors uh, throughout the United States and even internationally who are connected to the Why on Earth community and who help uh, provide the community mobilization strategies, techniques, and information uh, in their communities. And we also, as you mentioned, uh, host and curate a variety of workshops and experiences. This happens with corporate partners. This happens at universities. This happens with faith and fraternal organizations. It happens through a number of different uh, channels and networks in our society uh, and is a lot of fun. It's a wonderful way to reach folks. And then we also provide a number of resources, including uh, books, uh, which are available in digital form. Um, and uh, my main book, which is called Why on Earth, is available as an audiobook as well as an ebook. And uh, wanted to just mention we created a code Nexus 10, uh, that's the number 10, uh, to, for your audience uh, to get a 10% discount if they would like to get any of our uh, digital books or audiobooks, including Why on Earth, including our Soil Stewardship Handbook. They can do that at whyonearth.org and get that discount. And uh, we're working with a variety of scientists, of technical experts, of executives and organizational leaders of indigenous leaders, youth activists, and community leaders all coming at these challenges like climate change and biodiversity and uh, habitat stewardship through different lenses, but converging on taking action to help heal uh, the planet and also ourselves and our communities as we go about that work. And uh, we've been at this for only a few years now and are really excited about the momentum we have as an organization and uh, where we're headed in terms of being able to provide even greater support and infrastructure to support our partners and our ambassadors in communities throughout the world. And I, I will mention, Raj, by no means uh, is this intended to 
uh, you know, steal any spotlight, but we also host a podcast there. Uh, and uh, it's fun for me to be on the other side of the mic here with you today, as ordinarily I'm uh, the one conducting the interview. And uh, <laughs> so I, I really appreciate this opportunity to visit with you and your audience. And I know how much work and effort goes into uh, making these podcast conversations available. So thanks. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm of the abundance mindset. So I believe there's enough for everyone to go around. So I appreciate you saying that. And Indeed. I'd like I'd like you to highlight a few things. First, going back to why on earth you mentioned education and training without mentioning clients or customers. Can you perhaps shed some light on some of the results or the ahas that you've had once you've done your these training sessions? Yes, absolutely. It's actually one of the things that gives me a great sense of joy and uh, accomplishment, I'll say. Um, you know, so often when I'm asked to come into a university to give a, a symposium or asked to come into a, a corporate setting to provide uh, insights and uh, inspiration around, you know, anything as simple as a recycling program for a Fortune 500 company, what it does is it creates an opportunity for a dialogue and for sharing some information that might be outside of the typical lanes of some of the ways we think about some of these issues as a society. And often when we're talking about these sustainability challenges, as you know, uh, there's a heavy emphasis on the technical aspects of the challenges. And we, of course, are are celebrating the scientists, the engineers, the other technocrats who are developing all kinds of amazing innovative solutions. However, there's also a substantial and really important cultural aspect to all of the challenges and opportunities we have right in front of us as not only a national society here in the United States, but also a global community here on this planet. And so we'll take the opportunity to weave in some of the cultural aspects, which of course get more into human psychology and some of these quote unquote softer sciences uh, that might make some of us a bit less comfortable than we'd be with the hard sciences. Uh, but through that, it, it provides an opening, uh, a way for more of us to experience the hope and the inspiration to say, by golly, there is so much we can do and there is so much I can do in my own life, my day-to-day -day life, at my home, in my neighborhood, at my place of work, my place of worship. And it's, it's with those kinds of empowering messages that we see a lot of folks coming out of what might you know, otherwise be an ordinary uh, educational or enrichment program with a, a new and heightened sense of uh, passion and enthusiasm for making a real difference. And one of the central cores of all that we're doing is soil. And I'd, I'd love and, and be happy to speak about why we focus on soil and why soil is so important to connecting all of these dots for people. I would love for you to expand on soil. So when we're thinking about climate change, we're often thinking about needing to decarbonize energy, right? hugely important. Since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we have added some 245 billion tons of carbon to the atmosphere, right? Taking, taking our levels of concentration from 280 parts per million to well over 400 parts per million. 
Now, I, I have an accounting and finance background and can say that in any system, whether we're looking at this through a scientific lens or through a financial or market lens, if we have a 40% change like that, uh, that's going to have substantial impacts on the system. And indeed, that's exactly what we're seeing with our atmosphere. Now, the other side of this decarbonization coin is recarbonization of soil. And these are the strategies we have at our fingertips to collaborate with the living biosphere and enhance and accelerate natural processes that have been going on this planet for billions of years to pull carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back in the ground. We like to say where it belongs. It turns out that if we were to imagine by analogy, uh, the amount of carbon that we have put into the atmosphere since the beginning of the industrial revolution, it would be equivalent to a coal train, right? A train with cars full of coal wrapping around the equator of the planet over 1,000 times, wow. 1,017 uh, times. And that's the amount of carbon in our lifetime we have the opportunity to get back in the ground and out of the atmosphere. And the good news is that so many of us in the regeneration movement are now deploying strategies at all scales uh, to accelerate that carbon sequestration process naturally, working with the soil and with the plants. And the We know that the fossil energy resources that we utilize, the oil, the coal, the gas, that was all at one point life, primarily plant life, that was photosynthesizing uh, incident solar radiation coming to the planet and storing it. And the Earth has had a beautiful and some might even say miraculous way of maintaining certain levels of balance in climate over, well, at least the last you know several hundred thousand years, which is the time frame we're concerned about as a species. And notwithstanding small ice ages and so on, our, our, our extremes are relatively contained, especially you know in contrast to our neighboring planets, for example, where we see uh, day to night uh, swings of many hundreds of degrees Fahrenheit. Um, that, of course, would be untenable for. And it's the atmosphere that is providing that stabilizing effect. And it's the effects of the uh, heat trapping carbon molecules like carbon dioxide and even methane that are helping preserve the, the temperature band in which, you know, it's good to be human on the planet. <laughs> and uh, so working with the soil. Uh, and the plants, we have the opportunity to accelerate growth. We also, it turns out, have the opportunity to literally reverse desertification all around the planet. We know some of the most uh, challenging human crises, such as what we're seeing in the Middle East, are related to not only climate disruption, but also soil uh, destabilization and uh, degradation. And, you know, this Middle Eastern part of the world is what we refer to as the Fertile Crescent, right? Just in biblical times, just a couple of thousand years ago, two, three, four thousand years ago, this was a fertile and lush region of the planet, and it has been turned to desert. You could say we as a species could be called the desert-making species. Uh, we've been doing a lot of desert-making these last few thousand years. But with these regenerative strategies, we actually have the knowledge, the know-how, to reverse those trends and where we see deserts today, we can create lush, soil-rich uh, ecologies in the near future 
And we also know that when there's more foliage and soil returning to otherwise arid regions, that interacts with atmosphere in such a manner as to increase uh, precipitation, increase rainfall, and in some cases, snowfall. So there are all of these virtu virtuous, uh, positive feedback loops that occur when we're doing the regenerative work. And one of the things that brings me incredible joy and hope with the folks I'm networked with and have the opportunity to talk with in the work we're doing through the Wyoners community uh, is knowing some of the regenerative projects that are now scaling. And I want to mention a, an author, Judith Schwartz, whose book, The Reindeer Chronicles, was just published by Chelsea Green Publishers. In it, she uh, documents several uh, large-scale regeneration projects in a variety of locations, including uh, China, Saudi Arabia, Norway, New Mexico, uh, where folks are doing this exact work with soil and plants uh, to sequester carbon and to restore precipitation levels and restore heavily degraded landscapes. This also has the added benefit of creating greater social dialogue and in many cases creates a level of hope for community didn't previously have that hope uh, that, that really transforms lives of people uh, of all ages. And, you know, one of the things I love mentioning about soil is that we have in our soils worldwide some 2,500 billion tons of carbon. That's about 2.5 trillion tons of carbon. And a mere 10% increase in that soil carbon worldwide is equivalent to sequestering all of the carbon that we've released since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, a 10% increase. So the work we have ahead of us in the coming years and decades, from my vantage point, is crystal clear. And the beauty is we get to deploy these solutions at all scales. This includes things we do in our own home, our own kitchen, our own yard, our own community gardens, as well as deploying technologies and policy uh, that affects uh, regional, national, and international scales as well. That's pretty amazing. Now, I see that Why on Earth also has an ambassador program. Can you share some information regarding that program and how a person might get involved in that? Absolutely, yes, on the website, uh, we have a page that says become an ambassador. And if you uh, click into that and engage with our organization, that way you'll embark upon a journey of uh, collaboration with our core team and with ambassadors uh, worldwide. And we're actually right now in the process of up leveling our ambassador framework so that we provide even more robust tools uh, with uh, special video resources and documentation uh, made available exclusively to ambassadors uh, so that with uh, their own communities, their own companies and places of work, they're able to be agents of change um, uh, by collaborating with uh, folks in, in that way. And we also have on the website a global resources map that shows locations of our ambassadors, of uh, collaborating organizations of farms that we work with, and we do a fair bit with the biodynamic agricultural movement um, and our podcast guests. And you'll see there's a pretty diverse geographic region that we're already uh, working with, and that is poised now to expand uh, substantially. We uh, One of the things we're developing that'll, I think, be deployed uh, this winter 
is a uh, badge achievement framework so that we can further document and celebrate uh, the ways our ambassadors are making change in their own lives and their own communities. And uh, so we'll have a variety of badges uh, made available for folks as they're unlocking different achievements. And this can range from doing a soil activation uh, experience uh, to installing a permaculture garden uh, to hosting a uh, book club or discussion group. And again, with all of our digital resources, we have a lot of information and, and inspiring content to pull from and are helping to uh, empower those folks to uh, be agents of change in their community. So I will put a link to that program in the show notes so anyone that's interesting can sign up or at least get in touch with you. That's great. Yeah, I appreciate it, Raj. Now, earlier when we were speaking offline, you mentioned you've given 175 presentations in the last three years, which is a lot of presentations and speaking and symposiums. And you've got some interesting topics here on your website. There's a lot to go through here, but I'm going to pick a few that I'm interested in myself, so selfish reasons, but I'd like for you to elaborate if you don't mind doing so. Happy to. So what our grandparents knew and science now knows too. Can you share a little bit about that one? Absolutely. This is actually one of my favorites for a few reasons. My grandfather, who just passed uh, actually the same year that Why on Earth was published, 2017, uh, passed at the age of 99 and a half. Wow. He, he was a child of the, uh, of the Great Depression. And after growing up in those uh, unbelievably challenging circumstances, like so many in his generation, joined the military to fight fascism in Europe. And he was on a B-17 crew that flew out of uh, Britain over mainland continental Europe uh, several times, a couple of dozen times, and was finally shot down and was uh, ended up a prisoner of the Nazis and was actually on the Black March, uh, where uh, many, many, many men died uh, along the way. And this was toward the end of the war as the Russians were closing in from the east and the American, French, and British were closing in from the West and Canadians and other allies. And so the uh, Germans marched these men who were on the verge of starvation hundreds of miles uh, with no food, really. To... And my grandfather survived that and came out of the war weighing only 95 pounds and went on to live a full life with children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And I remember as a kid, he would garden all the time. He was always up in his garden. And I went up there and, you know, it was probably a lad of seven, eight years old and, you know, had energy bouncing off the walls. And I wanted to just throw the football and run around. And I remember looking and, and saying to my grandpa, grandpa, why do you garden so much? And he looked me right in the eyes and he said, because it makes me feel good. And the way he looked at me and the way he said that stuck with me all these years. Now, what he was speaking to is a set of phenomena we now know pretty well through the science. And the science has to do with the microbiome. And in the last 10 to 20 years, we have made incredible advances in our detecting and uh, uh, optical uh, abilities to see very, very small living organisms, which not only populate our bodies, but also populate the soil. And we know in our bodies that we have trillions of microorganisms. In fact, most of the living cells in our bodies are not human uh, in DNA. They are other microorganisms. 
in the soil, it's similar. We have trillions in a handful of healthy, uh, robust, organic soil. We have trillions of living organisms. And we know that interacting physically with our hands in the soil, uh, these microorganisms actually cross our permeable skin membranes and enter into our bloodstreams and actually affect things like serotonin production while also affecting things like our immune system and even our cognitive performance. There's a whole a lot of exciting science around all of this. And so what my grandfather understood from his own experience but didn't yet know in terms of the science is that he was actually treating his own PTSD from the war, from those horrific experiences by getting his hands in the soil on a basically daily basis. And we now know the science supports that uh, in, a, in a strong way. We see all kinds of efforts around the country working with vets, for example, returning from zones of conflict to help them with their neurobiochemical uh, regulation and balancing. And so this is where the soil becomes so central to what we're doing. And soil is something we can all interact with at some level in our communities, even in our biggest cities. There's a park close by. There's something we can connect with. Of course, we're seeing more and more community gardens, which is a movement we support in a big way. And that transdermal penetration of the microorganisms into our bodies is so important to our health and well-being. You could say from a biological perspective that we've evolved as creatures of the soil. Indeed, our language points to this. So in the Latin, right, we have this word humus, which is soil. And it comes from this root from which we also get the word human. And we get the word humor and humility also from the same root. So there's some wisdom in there for us to unpack. And I remember I was speaking with a rabbi about this a few years back. And she said, oh, well, in the Hebrew, uh, the creation story speaks of Adam or Adam being created from the soil or the clay, the Adama. And of course, uh, with over 50% of the planet uh, identifying with the uh, Abrahamic tra tradition of faith, the Jewish, the Christian, and the Muslim, uh, this, is, this is an important story and part of our language uh, root uh, for us to really understand what does it mean to be human on this planet? And as we begin to unpack our heritages, whether we're coming from Europe or North America or Asia or Africa or anywhere on the planet, we will have in our tradition, our traditional life ways, teachings and instructions that have a lot to do with ecological stewardship and how we work with the soils and the plants in our region. And in our modern Western technological society, it's one of the things that a lot of us have got a long, a long way from. And it's one of the great opportunities we have right now in our lives to re-engage with. And, uh, you know, composting is one of the keys uh, that we can all engage with immediately. And I'd, I'd love, Raj, to share why composting is so important if, if uh, you don't mind a, a couple more minutes of me rambling about it. No, no, please go right ahead. So composting is really interesting. When you look at, there's a great resource called Drawdown that Paul Hawken along with a whole number of scientists and global leaders uh, published in the last couple of years. And Drawdown looks at the top strategies we have for uh, decarbonizing the atmosphere, re-stabilizing uh, 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 atmospheric uh, levels of carbon, and provides a list of the top uh, 15 strategies by um, total atmospheric reduction potential. 
Uh, interestingly, the number one is refrigerant management. It actually isn't uh, a fossil energy. Number two is uh, onshore wind turbines, for example. Number three is reduced food waste. And it turns out that food waste worldwide uh, generates so much volume of greenhouse gases that if it were a nation, it would actually be the third most emitting nation after only the United States and China in terms of climate impact. Uh, the issue is when food is decomposing in landfills, it, it is decomposing in anaerobic conditions, meaning uh, there is not much oxygen available. And you get a certain set of microorganisms known as methanogens that do that decomposition work. As they're doing that metabolic work, they are emitting themselves methane, CH4, right? The basis of our, what we call natural gas, a very small molecule that easily escapes back up through the layers of landfill and even member, membranes and coverings of landfill into the atmosphere. We call it that fugitive gas emissions. And CH4, methane, is some 19 to 23 times as potent a greenhouse gas, a heat-trapping gas, as carbon dioxide. And so one of the things we can all be doing right now is reducing the amount of additional methane loading in the atmosphere by choosing to compost all of our kitchen scraps as opposed to sending it to the landfill via the trash. Now, what happens when we choose to compost instead is not only are we avoiding additional loading of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, we're actually contributing to the virtuous cycles of soil generation. And when we're feeding compost piles, we're literally feeding communities of trillions of microorganisms who are themselves creating more soil. And when that compost is spread throughout the landscape, it is creating additional nutrient-rich conditions for the plants so that they are going to pull more carbon out of atmosphere than they otherwise would through their respiration activities. And they're going to create sugars after the photosynthesis uh, converts that sunlight into uh, molecular energy. They're, they're, those sugars are going to get secreted into the soil, further feeding the communities of soil microorganisms and further enhancing this beneficial feedback loop that occurs in regeneration. So literally in our own homes from morning till night, right? From coffee grounds all the way to the carrot tops and what have you from our uh, dinners in the evening, all that can be composted. And it's one of the ways we can each participate even further directly in working to heal our climate, our planet and the ecosystems in which we're residing. So a couple of thoughts, I am familiar with Drawdown. One of my favorites from the list is educating women and girls specifically. I think that um, that makes it top 10. Yeah, and, yes, it does. Number and, six. And regarding the composting, our COO, Roshan Vani, started composting earlier this year. And I think the rest of the team is getting in on it. And Beautiful. you mentioned coffee grounds. So every morning I take my coffee grounds outside with water and I water my plants. Yes, that's excellent. And the roses in particular like coffee grounds. Um, coffee grounds will affect the pH of soil some. And with the acid-loving plants, um, they're great to load up with coffee grounds. Some of the others, you might want to be a bit more uh, sparing in the application. However, if you're putting all this in the compost piles, the organisms in the compost piles themselves are going to transform 
and balance pH and other things. So yeah, it's excellent. You guys are doing that. I love hearing that, Raj. That's wonderful news. Well, I appreciate it. And out of respect for time, I'm going to pick one more from this list, but I highly recommend people visit this list. Restoring our, and I might mispronounce the word, oikos, O-I-K-O-S like Sam, oikos. Yeah, this is really one of my favorites. Um, Oikos is a Greek word, ancient Greek word, and it means home. And it implies community. In our homes back in the ancient Greek world, the front room would have been also called an oikos. So it would refer to the entire house as well as the front room where we would receive neighbors and friends. And it has uh, this sense of connectivity to others uh, built into the meaning of the word. Interestingly, this is the root word, etymologically speaking, from which our word economy and our word ecology are derived, oikos. So both economy and ecology are effectively the sciences of understanding and managing and stewarding our homes. And this can be extended to the planetary scale, of course. And this is one of the core themes explored in the book, Why on Earth, uh, which I really invite your audience to check out. As I mentioned, that code Nexus10 will provide a 10% discount on the uh, ebook version as well as the audiobook version of Why on Earth. And it will also uh, give you a discount on our Soil Stewardship Handbook, which is our quick and dirty uh, look at why soil matters in terms of our health and well-being, our neurobiochemistry, and of course, uh, climate stabilization. And then we also have a series of children's books, Celebrating Soil, Celebrating Honeybees, and the newest Celebrating Water should be out in a few months. And uh, those are also available as ebooks. So the code will work on all of those. And this theme of Oikos is so important because it really, for me, helps to stay grounded and rooted in the understanding that it is in my home and from there outward that I can be the most powerful change maker in the world. And the more we can do to detoxify in our homes and to work in these soil cycles and to source organic and regenerative food and clothing products, the more we're able as a nexus uh, to help affect the kind of change rippling out through the mechanisms of the economy as well as our communities and social structures to help encourage and inspire others to make similar changes. So yes, Raj, I'm so happy you asked about Oikos and I talk about it quite a bit further in the book. And uh, the final chapter, it's a book that covers these topics in 33 chapters. The final chapter is called Culture and speaks to what you and I and many others uh, have right before us in terms of opportunities for positive change in our world. And indeed, right, you and I right now are helping to transform culture through this very conversation. Absolutely. Now, I've got a sense of who you are, but I'm going to ask the question because you mentioned ancestors, you mentioned your grandfather specifically. The crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. Now, you, obviously, you're very educated, you've researched well, but all this time and energy and resources you've put behind why on earth, what's your why? What drives you? What keeps you motivated? Thank you for asking that, Raj. That's a... Wonderful question, and many things are thinking about the answer. You know, my children are a big part of the answer, and my daughter is uh, not quite 23. She's about a month out from her birthday, and a very gifted scientist um, studying neuroscience and 
heading in the uh, medical uh, direction. And my son is 18 and he's studying architecture and environmental design and is a very gifted designer. And knowing that what we're doing now is going to have such tremendous influence on their futures and the futures of their children, that is a primary motivator for me. Also, as a kid, a child into my teen years, I, I had some opportunities to have some extraordinary experiences in the woods of the Pacific Northwest. And I, I talk about this a little in the introduction to the book, Why on Earth? Uh, on through um, high school and college, working with folks in the sustainability arena, the uh, economics arena, the energy sector, the agriculture sector, and even traditional ceremonial lifeways, uh, participating in a number of different sacred ceremonies. All of that has converged uh, to inform me uh, that it's imperative I do what I can to help in what ways I can uh, regarding these incredible uh, challenges that we're facing that might seem intractable, but probably actually aren't. And that really understanding that as more and more of us awaken to the possibility of tremendous change and healing and regeneration in our world, uh, it is that very phenomenon that creates higher likelihood that we're going to be able to get through some of these tremendous challenges that we're facing. And so my motivation, my why, and I love the question because the beginning of the book asks, what's your why, <laughs> um, has to do with those things. And in some of our native traditions, we talk about seven generations. This is a phrase you know many of us are familiar with. And I remember over many years thinking, gosh, seven, thinking about seven generations from now, that seems so abstract. What, you know, what a strange uh, time frame to focus on. And then one day it just hit me that, oh my gosh, I knew some of my great grandparents. And if I'm fortunate enough to know some of my great grandchildren, that is a span of seven generations. And so now to think ahead that decisions we're making now are going to affect not only our great grandchildren, but theirs as well, that's thinking ahead seven generations. And that is part of the call and imperative, I believe we can all awaken to as we understand our place as human beings on this amazing planet Earth and our role as stewards in our ecosystems. And from a cultural perspective, Raj, uh, it, it has become clear to me that that stewardship function really is at the core of our human beingness on Earth and that we can each choose to incorporate that more in our lives right now. And, and as a result, experience a much higher uh, quality of life and also perhaps a greater meaning and joy and sense of peace and well-being in our day-to-day. -day. Aaron, I think that's a beautiful why. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. 2025, what does the future hold for why on Earth? Yeah, excellent question. We're uh, at that point in time, likely uh, working with thousands of ambassadors worldwide uh, and collaborating with a whole host of companies and organizations. Uh, to name a few, we're already collaborating with Dr. Bronner's with the Rodale Institute, and they're part of an initiative with Patagonia and Demeter and others 
launching a regenerative organic certification for food and agriculture. One of the things folks don't yet totally understand is that our carbon loading in the atmosphere is not just from the burning of fossil energy resources, but is also from the chemical poisoning of agricultural lands. We've, we've been applying so many uh, biocides uh, to millions and millions and millions of otherwise fertile acres that we've literally been burning off soil. And as those biological communities in the soil uh, die off, uh, car more carbon is released to the atmosphere. So the healing of soils is central to where we're heading in these next few years. By 2025, it is possible, Raj, that we will have taken the toxic chemicals out of agriculture and will have learned to deploy beneficial biological microorganism cultures back into these millions of acres of breadbasket regions all around the world, including our Midwest, and restore those ecologies, thereby not only enhancing the quality and nutrition of the food, but also diminishing the pollution runoff aggregating in the river deltas all around the world. We have dead zones at the mouths of most of the major rivers of the world at this point. And also restoring the virtuous cycles of carbon and plant uh, carbon sequestration that helps stabilize climate. We think in the next few years, we're going to see the will of the global community mobilized on such massive scale that we're going to experience and participate in regeneration activities at incredible magnitude, perhaps even challenging to envision and imagine right now. But that the key under all of this is not so much the technical challenges, but is really about culture and psychology and the mobilization of will through the channels of policy and through the decision-making in private companies and publicly traded corporations and other organizations. So that's all a question of leadership and of what we each choose in our own lives to take on and understanding our responsibilities as human beings. Well, Aaron, you painted a beautiful picture and I look forward to seeing it come to fruition. My last question is, and you sprinkled this entire, if, everyone, if anyone's listening between the lines, you've given a lot of advice already. But my specific question is, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? Absolutely. I love this question, Raj. And it's uh, in, in the uh, Soil Stewardship Handbook, there's actually a set of calls to action uh, provided. Uh, I would say this, I would say, if you're not already compost, uh, if you haven't already, look at detoxifying what you have in your kitchen, under the sink, your cleaning products, what you're using in your bathrooms, and consider your connection with soil and with plants and the way in which that interdependency allows your life to be possible here on this amazing planet. And to ask yourself if the techniques and the strategies for healing our planet and our communities were available to you, would you choose to mobilize and take action with that knowledge? Aaron, I think that's a great place to leave off. I really enjoyed speaking with you and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Likewise, Raj, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron. Before we go, I'm excited to share that we've launched our comic strip, The Adventures of Mira and Nexi. You can find the first issue 
at our website, nexuspmg.com, under the Original Content tab. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.